Pretty good. I want to start uh, with a couple, um, couple of sayings that have been sage advice and instrumental in my life. So actually what I want you to do now is uh, where you're at, close your eyes and listen to these words and uh, kind of let the, um, the wisdom in here wash over you. The first one is this. If you can't imitate him, don't copy him. You can observe a lot by watching. And the one that's been most profound to me is this. Always go to other people's funerals, otherwise they won't come to yours. Anybody have an idea of where all of these sayings are from? It, preferably uh, if you're under the age of 35. Anybody know? Yogi Berra, nice job. Yogi Berra. I got a picture of Yogi Berra here. How many people even know who Yogi Berra is? Let's just start there. Raise your hand. So, okay. <clears throat> Yogi Berra is a famous uh, New York baseball player, played baseball in the 40s, uh, kind of through the 40s and 60s. And here are a couple of other things that Yogi Berra said. Uh, These ones you will probably have heard before. It's like deja vu all over again. No one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. The future ain't what it used to be. And uh, we would have, no, you wouldn't have won if we had beaten you. And then uh, another one that I think is hilarious is 90% of baseball is mental The other half is physical. (laughs) So uh, besides having a common origin in its speaker, Yogi Berra, what else are common about these statements? Shout something out. What? Yes, incongruent. I mean, actually, they're kind of silly in the way that they're stated. I would say that they're paradoxical. In a way, these statements are paradoxical. Yogi Berra was not only a great baseball player, but some would even say he was a philosopher of paradox. So paradox is this, and we're going to be talking a lot about this idea today, but paradox is this. It's a statement that appears to be self-contradictory or silly, but may include latent truth. It can be used to illustrate an opinion or statement contrary to accepted traditional ideas. So if a paradox is something that forces us to wrestle with inherent tension between two seemingly conflicting truths, what it does is it creates an opportunity for one to think over an idea in an innovative way or to change a way of being in response. So similar to these uh, things that Yogi Berra said, we say paradoxical things or or common common statements that we've made, and all are kind of accepted. Here's a couple of them. It's the beginning of the end. It's a statement many of us have probably said in the past. That's a paradoxical statement. The idea that less is more. Again, paradoxical. The last one, you have to spend money to make it. All of these things seem contradictory, and yet we would probably all recognize at some level there's truth in these statements. These phrases are contradictory in their words, but then hold truth that might actually force us 
to act differently or to see things differently. Just this week, I had a, uh, an interesting conversation with a, uh, I was in a conversation with a worker at the city of Spokane, and uh, he had come, and, and we were having this discussion, and, and I began to ask him some questions about his life, and he kind of started telling me uh, a little bit about his life, and somehow we got on restaurants and the fact that he was going out to uh, eat dinner with his family tonight, and, and we were talking about the best restaurants in Spokane, and he just came flat out and said, the best restaurant in Spokane is Skipper's. <laughs> Has anybody been to Skipper's here? Just raise your hand. Okay, some very excited person out there. Josh is very excited about skippers. Uh, so I, I would say the best restaurant in Spokane being skippers is a little bit paradoxical, just, just in that statement. But he was talking about it and, and how much he loves skippers. And then he said this, we're going tonight because they're having a special on jumbo shrimp. Again, jumbo shrimp being a paradoxical thing because they're large, small things, Right. And I was uh, kind of in the midst of preparing for this and this conversation. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is great material for this weekend. I can, this is awesome. So thankful for this. <clears throat> when encountered in language and life, paradox can sometimes be uncomfortable. Because paradox in of itself is not black and white. It doesn't contain a definitive answer. It doesn't show you an exact way of being. There's two truths that seem contradictory. And so there's not uh, always a solid, solid answer. And we as humans, we like answers. We like clarity. We like things to fit really night, uh, nice and neatly in the boxes that we have designed. And so this morning, I'm going to argue that the church actually is paradox in a lot of ways. And in order to do this, I want to begin first uh, with prayer, and then I want to look at a couple of things in theology that maybe will help to set the stage. So uh, let's pray first. Lord, we pray that uh, as we hear from you this morning, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. Spirit, we ask that you uh, would be in this place, that your truth would be understood. God, that, uh, that we would be a people willing to wrestle, willing to question, willing to search for answers, but then also willing to be still and know that maybe there are not answers for everything. So God, be with us in this endeavor this morning. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So if we look first at theology, some of the most central tenets of our faith are completely shrouded in paradox, okay? So think about this one first, the Trinity. The very nature of the Lord that we worship is self-conflicting in some way because the Trinity is three in one, and one in three. How can one thing be three? How can three things be one? This doesn't make a lot of rational sense, and yet it is fundamentally true and a core tenet of our faith. The Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church 
describes the Trinity as this. It's the central dogma of Christian theology that one God exists in three persons, one substance, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is one, yet self-differentiated. The God who reveals himself to mankind is God equally in three distinct modes of existence, yet remains one through all eternity. This is somewhat paradoxical, a three-in-one and a one-in-three. The explicit idea of the Trinity is really virtually absent from Scripture. And in fact, the first time in history that we see a lot of study done around this is about 200 years after Jesus. And since then, the Christian church has wrestled with, fought about, divided over the truth and how to best explain or understand the paradox of the Trinity. Here's another one, the incarnation. The central figure of our faith, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. In all of his teaching, the reality of his very substance, both God and man, did not seem to be of great concern for him to help us understand what that actually means. And yet, Similar to the Trinity, over the last 2,000 years, numerous councils have deliberated and entire denominations have been formed around competing understandings of this paradox. Perhaps one of the places in the gospel where we see paradox is the cross. Father John R. C.X. says this, In the ugliest place of human existence, crucifixion and death, God reveals himself as absolute, total, self-giving love. Being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion, the death, the Christ form is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. You see, the cross is paradoxical because it puts on stage the brutality and vicious nature of humanity next to the forgiveness and deep love of God. Two categorically and mutually exclusive things coalesce in a moment of history, and it changes everything. Each of these paradoxes in our faith, we have had to accept. We've said, yes, we believe this to be true, even though we may not understand, even though we may not have all the language to just uh, fully know what it means, we accept it as truth. No definitive answers, just mystery, and we live in that. And if we don't live in that, then we have to go to the place where people have done enough mental gymnastics to try to create ways around that paradox. The more that I read Scripture, the more I see this idea. I actually have a list up here, uh, and we'll leave this up here for a minute if if you want to look at these. But these statements are statements that are made throughout uh, the Scripture primarily, uh, I think actually all in the New Testament, These are all paradoxical in nature, things that seem contradictory and yet contain truth. And the more that I read the Gospels, the more Jesus seems to be fine in paradox. If you turn to John 3, you see his interaction with the Pharisee Nicodemus. Nicodemus was of the ruling council, and he comes to Jesus under the guise of darkness, seemingly so that he has not found out that he's inquiring about Jesus and he says, uh, he asked Jesus, tell me about yourself. What, how do you do the things that you are doing? 
And Jesus responds to this man's inquiry with some, uh, in a kind of a classic Jesus way, not really getting at the question that he asks. And Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, we read this, and you have to pause here for a moment, because we read this, and this makes sense to us. But we also have an entire lifetime of context as to what born again means. We know that born again is a a phrase that is commonly used. We have a lot of context to draw from. Being born again means coming to a saving knowledge in Jesus, that uh, we have trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, that we have been renewed, that we have been redeemed. But what do you think Nicodemus heard in this moment? Because he didn't have a lot of context as to what born again meant. And so the scripture is pretty clear that Nicodemus becomes hung up on this idea that you can physically be born again. And he says, well, you can't re-enter your mother's womb and be born again. This doesn't make any sense, Jesus. This must have sounded incredibly silly, even ludicrous to him at the time. And so immediately he's kind of in this tension of what is Jesus even talking about? These things are contradictory. How can somebody be born again? And Jesus answers, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at me saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus is still hung up on this idea of born again. And he says, Jesus, how can this be? Nicodemus is in this moment of wrestling with the tension of paradox. How can somebody be born again? What is Jesus even talking about? It's at this moment that Jesus speaks perhaps the most famous Bible verse of all, John 3.16. And then the scripture moves on, the gospel moves on. And we're left with having really no idea what happens to Nicodemus. Now, we see him come back up again in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, he encourages the chief priests to investigate before indicting Jesus. So they're in this conversation about what should we do with Jesus and, and how do we capture this guy. And Nicodemus says, whoa, 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 let's just hold on. You guys might be rushing a little too much. We see him again later on towards the end of the gospel that he brings ritual elements for the embalming and burial of Jesus' body. But we really don't actually know what happens to Nicodemus. What he does with this information that he got from Jesus. We know that Jesus uses a paradoxical rhetoric to challenge Nicodemus' thinkings, to push the boundaries of his understanding to potentially move him from assurance to questioning. He came to Jesus looking for an answer, but he wasn't given what he was looking for. He was given paradox. He was given mystery. Here is what I am sure of. Paradox does two things. The first thing it does is it fosters humility. Brian McLaren says this, the moment that we have all the bolts screwed in tight and all the nails hammered in, it's at precisely that moment that we cease to be faithful. You see, it's a lesson in humility. 
when you accept the reality that you cannot fully answer or understand something. It's in that moment that your posture is then humbled. You see, here is the truth. Not everything in our faith, in our culture, in our lives is cut and dry. There is not always a definitive right and wrong answer. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't push for further understanding. But it does mean that we have to be okay in the tension of not knowing sometimes. And as much as 200 or 2,000 years of church history has been an exercise in tightening bolts and hammering nails, we were never intended to fully finish the product. We don't get to know everything with total assurance because we are not God. The second thing that paradox does is it offers us an opportunity to accept something bigger than ourselves and our understanding. Because once paradox is is accepted, then we can faithfully live within its tension. You see, we will never understand the Trinitarian reality, but we can humbly accept it as true, as something beyond our understanding, and then submit our lives to live within its essence as relational people. We can see the truth within the Trinity and then live our lives accordingly, whether we understand it or we don't. Accepting paradox allows us to settle in unattached to our own bias with a willingness to work towards something bigger than ourselves. So these are a a few ways that we see paradox in theology. We see it in the way that Jesus teaches. But there are other paradoxes in our life. And I would contend that there is paradox in the church and that largely the church is paradoxical in its nature. Things that seem counterproductive, things that may feel counterintuitive, facets of the church that might even create dissidents for people, but things that are true. So let's start with a really easy one this morning. We are both an organization, I'm ta- speaking specifically about New Community, we are both a nonprofit organization and we are a people. New Community is a nonprofit that was started 25 years ago. We have bylaws somewhere deep in a file cabinet somewhere in our office. But this means that there are rules and regulations to how we have to operate. There's tax codes that we have to operate under. There's certain things that we have to do every year to consider a, or to uh, keep our nonprofit status. But at the same time, New Community is a group of people some of which are here, some of which are not this morning, but we are a family, a group of people in that we are not bound to anything but the kingdom of God. So which one are we? Well, we're both. We're a nonprofit organization and we are a kingdom people that gather. Here are a few more. We are both local and global. We are a church here locally this morning, but we are also a church globally. We are just as much a part of new community as we are the brothers and sisters with those around the world faithfully following Jesus. We are a church and we are a small part of the church. 
New community is here, but new community is also with the Boreat people. How does that make sense? There's some paradox in that. We are gathered and we are scattered. Similar to the above, the church is both gathered and scattered, meaning the church is here together this morning, but the church is also when we are in small groups throughout the week. And the church is also when we meet for coffee with a friend who attends a different Sunday worship service because we are a gathered and a scattered people. We are one body and yet different members. As we gather today, we are one body just as much as we are individual members of that body. Our identity is both. We are not simply individuals in the same room. We are a living, breathing representation of Christ together as a body. You see, without me and without you, the body suffers. And without the body, I suffer and you suffer. Church, there's a, a last one that we'll look at. Church is for you and it's not about you at all. The reason we gather, the reason we do what we do, is for me and it's for you. And in the same hand, it's not about you at all. And it's not about me at all. Yes, your growth and your maturity and your needs being met is what the church is for. And this should be a place where you feel known and cared for. Yet at the same church, same time, church is not about your growth, about your maturity and your needs. It's about far more than just you. It's about far more than just me. So these are all paradoxical in nature, but it's not just enough to recognize these things. Now we have to wrestle with the tension that these things create in our lives. So what does it mean to be a part of a church of paradox? We'll look back at these four things. To be both global and local means that the church is here and it is abroad. But do you care for the well-being of the Christian church across the world as much as you do for this one? Do you hold in high esteem your brothers and sisters from a more liberal or a more conservative denomination? Do you consider them your brothers and sisters? You see, being both local and global means that we have an obligation to each other. Not only the person that you're sitting next to this morning, but also the person across the street at Mosaic. And also the person across the globe, because we are both local and global. To be gathered and scattered. Now, we might feel more comfortable viewing church as something that happens on Sunday. And in fact, our language would imply that Sunday morning is the only time that we are a part of church because that's when we go to church, right? My kids always talk about, when are we going to church? Well, Sunday morning is when that happens. They don't quite understand the fact that we are a scattered people as well. And so accepting this paradox means we see ourselves as the church throughout the week as well. But if we see ourselves as the church throughout the week, then that means our words and our actions and our choices should reveal that we are churching all week. 
And that's a very different thing for many people. You see, it's easy to be a certain way for an hour and a half on Sunday morning. But then are you that way throughout the week? Am I that way throughout the week? Do my actions, do my words reflect those realities all week long because I recognize, well, church isn't just something that happens when we gather, but church is something that is happening all week long because of who I claim to follow. We are one body with different members. So what's more important, the pieces or the whole? What does it look like to submit to the idea of body or the whole community being just as important as your own desires and your own needs? Do you truly view the needs of the community just as important as your own? We are all different with different life circumstances and experiences and hurts and relationships and viewpoints, and yet each has a function in this place and are a vital member to this body. So ask yourself, when wrestling with this tension, are you as an individual more important than anyone else in this room? Do you truly believe that? The last one, if the church is really about me and not, not about me at the same time, how do I understand that tension? Maybe a place to ask that question is, how do I understand what Jesus did on the cross? Was that an act for me or was that an act for everyone? And how you answer that might shape your idea of personal faith. And when I say personal faith, what does that even mean? If it's about me, then this place should always be calling me closer to Christ. But if it's really not about me, then why am I so concerned with who's in and who's out? See, with each of these paradoxical ideas, there is tension. Tension because we as humans want definitive answers. We want concrete, concrete ways to live and to be. We want these things because it gives us a semblance of control. Because we have a handle on the things in our lives and we like that feeling of being in control. And yet paradox militates against these things and it creates only an opportunity to be humbled and offers the ability for us to accept a truth and reality that is beyond our understanding, that is beyond our control. This week, as you go into groups, as you meet with people for coffee, as you discuss with your family, with your friends... Think about other paradoxes that we see within this place. Other things that may seem contradictory and yet are true. Discuss how as a people we might work through these tensions. How we might humble ourselves to accept them and then live differently in their reality. And I'll end this way this morning. Paradoxically speaking, the process of the church in of itself, is beautifully messy. In my eight years here, 
I have seen people care for one another and sacrifice for one another and willingly offer grace and forgiveness. I've seen relationships restored. I've seen years of hurt and pain be redeemed. But I've also seen people leave. And I've seen people choose comfort and convenience over commitment and faithfulness. And I've seen gossip and wounding words spoken. And I've seen people choose themselves over others time and time and time again. This is the reality of church. It's beautifully messy. And we have to live within that tension. This place is far and away one of the most beautiful communities I've ever been a part of, and yet at the same time, one of the messiest. And that is true with any church that you ever go to. Sometimes when we see those things, the easiest route is to not confront the paradox, but it's to run. It's to find a place where all of your questions can be answered. A place where you might regain a little bit of that control. Where you can find comfort and insulate yourself again from something that might create tension in your life. But this has never been the church and it's certainly never been new community. Our call is to faithfully stand together in the midst of paradox. To seek deeper relationships and commit to Christ until our time here on earth is over. And like Yogi Berra once said, it ain't over until it's over. Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that you are far, far beyond our finite minds. We recognize that you are Lord over all creation and that you love us individually. You know us individually, but you are also God over all. That you are sovereign over time and over space. God, as we seek further understanding, may we always step forward with humility. Acknowledging that there are some things for us and some things that we just have to be okay with mystery. And in those moments, Lord, give us the ability to accept the truth before us and live our lives accordingly. Lord, we do pray for those affected by terrible violence in our world this past week. Our hearts are broken. We are mindful of the hurt and the pain, but we also trust that you are God. We trust that you are a God of peace and restoration and redemption and that you are moving even when it may be hard to see where. Lord, thank you 
for this day. Thank you for uh, your provision in our lives and your love in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Check one, two. Okay. You guys want to stand with us? We're going to end with that song we opened with.